My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't I still hear the view that fashion is frivolous. It's just a bit of fun. But as you and I know, dear listeners, it is, of course, about way more than that. Being concerned with manufacturing stuff, it has serious impacts on people and planet. And being both very visually commanding and also very popular, it can be a great jumping off point for more broader conversations around things like the environment. If you haven't had a chance to check out the episode with Tim Flannery, it's number 17, in which we discuss climate change and what's happening with the Great Barrier Reef. I would love you to check that one out. It's one of the shows I'm most proud of. Today's episode is also a ripper, and it can be seen as a kind of good friend to that Tim Flannery show. So last week we heard from someone with a pretty awesome job title, Blake Mykoski, Tom's chief shoe giver. Today's guest is another one with a ridiculously good thing to put on a business card. He is Patagonia's Director of Philosophy, Vincent Stanley. Now, Patagonia is not a fashion company, although it certainly inspires many people in fashion. It is, of course, the most inspiring outdoor gear brand and an industry leader by a long stretch when it comes to things like using organic cotton and removing chemicals from their supply chains. Things like mapping those chains, transparency and working with fair trade and actively working to support eco-causes. I'm going to read out their mission statement. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Quite strong words, isn't it? Vincent has been with Patagonia since 1973, when his uncle who is none other than Yvonne Chouinard, gave him a job as a kid out of college. Shameless plug opportunity. I actually interviewed Yvonne, that legendary changemaker, for my book, Wardrobe Crisis, and we talked all about the Patagonia story. Have you read it yet? For listeners in the US, it's coming out in America in February. Hooray. Anyway, Vincent, what a fascinating man. He is a writer a big reader, a deep thinker, and a passionate environmentalist. He's a visiting fellow at the Yale School of Management. He's a talker. He's also a poet whose work has appeared in Best American Poetry. With Yvonne, he co-wrote the book The Responsible Company, and that's kind of like this handbook for building a more sustainable business. 
Vincent is also the guy who wrote the Footprint Chronicles, which many of you will have heard of. It's basically Patagonia's game-changing supply chain mapper. And along with Rick Ridgway, Vincent also worked on the super famous Don't Buy This Jacket campaign, which we've discussed before in this podcast, and which ran in the New York Times in 2011. It was so cool to sit down with him and talk face to face. So buckle up. This is big stuff. Philosophy, poetry, environmentalism, population growth, cognitive dissonance, activism, and the role of business in making a difference. This episode tackles serious issues. We discuss things like what's happening with our soils and the loss of biodiversity, climate change, ocean acidification, water pollution. So overwhelming, yes, but the positive story behind this stuff is action. Vincent asks us, how do we want to live? What do we want our economy and indeed the world to look like in the future? This episode is guaranteed to make you think. So settle down, open your mind, grab a notebook. I'm obsessed with notebooks. I always carry one with me. I have one by my bed in case I wake up in the night and need to write something down. And I always say to interns that we get a Marie Claire, it's not the same to tap it out on your phone. It's the act of using your hand and pen to write things down that makes you remember them and clicks further thinking into action. So grab your notebook and please let us know what you make of this conversation. I'd love to hear from you. And it's a great privilege to hear from Vincent. Vincent, I love interviewing writers. What are you reading at the moment? There's an Australian writer and poet uh, who's also a surfer, and uh, Dave Rastovich gave me this book to read, which I'm going to read on the plane uh, tomorrow. Great. I love Dave Rastovich. Yeah, Yeah, he's great. He's a poetic soul, actually. He's a wonderful wonderful man. We spent the day uh, yesterday together. Are you a surfer? No, I'm not. I came in Patagonia, the company I work for, was almost entirely populated by climbers and surfers. When I arrived, I was uh, Yvonne Chouinard's nephew, and I came to work intending to stay six months, and 44 years later, I'm still there. But because I didn't surf, I was the last person in the office when the waves were firing, and so it's, I would be the one to take the dealer's orders over the phone, and at a certain point, someone tapped on my shoulder and said, you must be the sales manager, and that's what I did for 25 years. So, Is that what happened? Yeah, you became yeah. the sales manager by virtue of hanging around whenever it got to Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> Ivan Chouinard is your uncle. Right. He's the founder of Patagonia. He's a titan. How would you describe him as a human? He's hard to describe as a human. He was um, he's very uh, down-to-earth, He trained himself as a blacksmith. He loves to work with his hands. Uh, He loves to read and to think. When I was growing up, our family was, my grandfather, Yvonne's father, was a a plumber. And uh, we lived in uh, Southern California. And my relatives were all fairly conventionally behaved. If you scratched a little bit below the surface, they weren't so conventional. But I remember as a six-year-old watching Evil walk barefoot in the rain and thinking that was the only adult I had ever seen do that. Yeah, right. He was uh, climbing from the time he was in his teens, and that's how he became a manufacturer of climbing equipment, is that he couldn't find the gear that uh, he needed for these climbs in Yosemite. So I remember visiting my grandparents and seeing uh, Yvonne at work on the uh, coal-fired forge in the backyard, uh, hammering out pitons. That was very romantic uh, for a kid. 
And I also remember him showing up at our house in San Francisco, and he, on his way back from Yosemite, he and three friends would knock on the door, and they'd sleep in the backyard in their sleeping bags and uh, disappear in the morning. And, uh, Were you a bookish kid then? Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I was a bookish kid. And uh, my cat, this is 1959, my Siamese cat would freak out when uh, Yvonne showed up and his friends because she had never seen a man with a beard in 1959. So, Actually, in 1959, having a beard was kind of radical. It was like it was outdoors a, oh, and yeah. renegade, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. It wasn't so much outdoors. It was more... Bohemian. Yeah, beatnik in those days, which was... Uh, we, we didn't have any in my family, except Yvonne was kind of close to that. And the other thing is that my mother revered him because he lived a simple life. He was very poor, lived in the back of his van in the summer, sold his goods, had a lot of integrity. So it's a little ironic for me that he's the one in the family that became the... Uh, the titan of industry. <laughs> I read in an interview that you did, which is yeah. online on the Patagonia website, and we will share it in the show notes, that he was, I quote, your boyhood hero. Yes. And later, after I came to work here, my mentor. So that was 1973 when yeah. you started work at yeah. Patagonia. It was called Chouinard Equipment back then, right? right? Mm-hmm. So making yeah. pitons, pitons. Right. How do you say that? Pitons. The climber is yeah. not within me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us? about what the company was like back then. Where was your office? How many people were in it? And yeah. what was pre-Patagonia, Patagonia? Okay. We, we occupied a, a little tin shed in a, the corner of a courtyard. There was an abandoned abattoir on the one site that's now our retail headquarters. And a sign, alcoholic sign painter occupied the rest of the courtyard. There was a little retail space that was about uh, 60 square feet. I guess that's six square meters something like that, and a tiny little office. There were about 10 people when I started to work. But he already had in mind this idea of creating a clothing company, and partly because the the company had a reputation for making the best gear in the world, but it was very small and it was a limited market. There just weren't that many climbers. So the idea of, of creating a clothing company was to create something that would support the climbing It was a cash cow that was easily milkable. Well, yes. Well, you that, wrote that's, that, that somewhere, the, uh, and that I was, was like, okay, the, it didn't was, work out that way. No, that was the idea. <laughs> and the, you know, the idea was, okay, we're going to do this, and then I think Yvonne thought, well, at 40, I'll retire and take a sailboat to the South Seas. But we really didn't know anything when we went into the business, and we didn't know that before you had cash cows, you had cash flow crises or so. Before all that, though, the idea of the pitons was built on sustainability because Yvonne was concerned and his friends who were climbing were concerned that the original steel... Steel pitons. They were soft steel. There were two... They were damaging the mountain. You'd leave them behind. That's right. So there, there were two stages, and the first was that he got into business making hard steel pitons that lasted much, much longer than the soft steel pitons that were imported from Europe. That established his reputation, but then as climbing did become a bit more popular, it's a little like surfing. You get a lot of new surfers, you don't get new breaks. And so all of these new climbers were climbing the classic routes using the pitons, and every time you hammered one in, it would expand the crack slightly. So the question for Ivo and his partner at that time was, 
this is the, the way we make our living is destroying the sport we love. We're desecrating the rock. And is there an alternative? And that's when they started to look at what climbers around the world used, and British climbers tended to use these little uh, nuts that originally they found along the railroad tracks. And you made out of aluminum, you could put a wire or a little piece of rope and just gently wedge this into a crack and twist it and draw down and it would hold your weight. The problem was that nobody was asking for this. And it was a radical change for climbers who were used to hammering a piece of hard steel into granite to ask them to take this dainty little piece of aluminum and gently twist it into the crack and hold it underweight. So his solution was to make the investments, really uh, scrimp and, and uh, take that risk, but also to come out with a catalog that had a 12-page article that was both manifesto and user's manual on why people should switch, except in conditions of danger, from pitons to chocks. It was tremendously influential, and I think it really helped determine we didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, I would say this is a seminal moment in the company. Okay, so, Vincent, you rocked up at this company that was all full of climbers and athletic mm, outdoor yeah. people, mm-hmm. but you wanted to be a writer. Yeah. How did that happen? I wanted to be a writer, and um, I got engaged by this little company. And when we started to make clothes in 1973, and uh, I hired our reps. People responded to it. We started to have uh, large growth spurts in the 70s and 80s. And I was caught up. I found it really interesting. I liked the people I worked with. I always liked the culture at the company, which was very close to the countercultural world that I grew up in in the late 60s and early 70s. But when I hit 40, I thought if I'm going to be a writer, I'd better get serious. So I I left the job as a manager of the wholesale part of the business and supported myself for about for a dozen years writing copy for the company, catalog copy, but also worked on some of the early environmental campaigns. And then came back in to run the editorial department and got involved in creating the Footprint Chronicles and the Common Threads program, which eventually became Warnware and then Patagonia Books. I mean, the Footprint Chronicles is extraordinary, and I want to get into detail about that a little later. But first of all, let's talk just a little bit about the climate in 1973, because it's actually fascinating. Like, if you look back at your very long career with Patagonia, the world was a different place. Mm. The global economy is 10 times bigger today, right? Yeah. And the population is about 60% larger. So, you know, it's interesting for me because I work a lot with students now. So I can look back over a 44-year period and say, okay, the world population was 4.3 billion, now it's 7.5 billion. And when I'm talking to students, when they've worked as long as I have, it doesn't seem so odd to me. Okay, the world will be 9 or 10 billion people. And you can see the pressures on the environment, which result from the increase in population and the increase in consumption, the accelerated and accelerating rate of consumption. I wrote this down from the Patagonia website. You may well have written it. (laughs) And it is, we believe the environmental crisis has reached a critical tipping point without commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, defend clean water and air, and divest from dirty technologies. Humankind as a whole will destroy our planet's 
ability to repair itself. And, the, and that's it's overwhelming. Yeah, it is overwhelming. But on the other hand, this is also something I, I talk to younger people about. If you look, what is the environmental crisis? It really has six components, and all of them are scary, from the loss of biodiversity to climate change to acidification of the oceans, which threatens all life in the oceans, to loss of uh, water from the underground aquifers, to the pollution of water from fertilizers creating nitrogen that kill the fish, to the fact that the rivers won't meet the sea in China by 2025, to the prevalence of uh, toxic chemicals that we started to introduce about 150 years ago. Only a few have been tested to the problems with the soil, with uh, runoff from agriculture. And the overall effect of what you can call the environmental crisis is essentially the desertification of the planet. And that's what we have to turn around. But how can we begin to figure out problems of this magnitude? I think one thing is we have to have a better vision of how it is we want to live and what would a healthy planet look like. So on the one hand, if I think about what the economy should look like in 2050, there are all kinds of movements, there are all kinds of people working on every one of these problems in different parts of the world, and they're all talking to each other. So there's a huge movement to make cities greener and more livable, to uh, make them more human. There is a movement to create regenerative agriculture, which is really promising. And if you bring the soil back to health, by reducing or eliminating tillage, getting rid of monocultural agriculture, which is ruining the soil, do rotations, do companion planting, plant deeper-rooted plants. You can not only bring the soil back to life, but there's increasing evidence that you can sequester carbon in the amounts that will make up for the loss of tropical and temperate rainforests and from the fact that the ocean can no longer absorb the carbon the way it used to without turning more acid. And what we mentioned earlier, E.O. Wilson's proposal to take a good chunk of the landmass and uh, save it for all of life and keep human beings a little bit out of it in order to let nature repair itself. To make changes like this takes enormous global community action right. and political mm -hmm. will. The reason mm. why I feel that I can raise such huge questions yeah. to you in the context of yeah. this interview is that it's your job within the context of Patagonia to think big stuff. Your job mm -hmm. title is Director of Philosophy, which is a rad job title. Mm. But if you think about philosophy, it's from the Greek and it means considering the fundamental problems mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that humankind faces. You know, it's about existence, knowledge, values. It's really what are we here for? Right, right. It's big stuff. But, you know, there are a couple of That's other... That's what we need, though, isn't it? Big thinking to get into these problems or not. Yeah, we, need we need grassroots we, action we need as well. A, we need both. And, and we need a vision, and we also have the grassroots action. I think one of the things we've lost with globalization is a sense of place and a willingness to defend. I mean, what is it we care about? Do we understand our food shed or our watershed? What about the local forest? Uh, what about the local culture that is an in, more of an indigenous culture than KFC or McDonald's coming into Sydney? I think that people have to have to revive this sense of a larger world than themselves. 
that they can take part of and that they can also influence, that you can put your hand out and you can make a difference. Is that where this phrase that you use, new localism, comes yeah. in? Yeah, very much so. So we're a global company and we participate in the traditional industrial economy. We have a global supply chain. But we're also, where we have stores, we try to be a friend to all of the elements in that community that are trying to improve the, the quality of the environment. You know, there are two other big Greek words, ecology and economy. And basically, eco is household. And it comes from very old Greek sense of the economy is the management of the household and ecology is the study of the household. So they're really closely related. When you talk about political will, we need political will, but we're not going to have that for a long time. And what we need is the space for people to make a lot of smaller efforts and then study them. For instance, Donald Trump was elected president on November 8th. He didn't carry any city in the United States except for Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Every other city voted for Hillary Clinton. And what the cities share is this desire to become more livable and also to create a local economy so that they don't fall into the decay that most American cities certainly fell into in the 70s through the early 2000s. And if I'm the mayor of Houston, I'm in a very conservative state, Texas, and I'm looking for my allies and my mentors and my supporters, not in the Texas legislature. I'm looking at Melbourne. I'm looking at Amsterdam. I'm looking at New York. I'm looking at other places that are trying out different kinds of things to make that city better. If I'm involved in regenerative agriculture, and you have little hubs of that in the United States, in the Hudson Valley, outside New York, in Marin County, outside San Francisco, we have this wonderful contact with the University of Washington called the Bread Lab, where he, this man has identified 41,000 species of grain. Okay, So in a time of climate change, when habitat is literally changing by 500 kilometers for every place. You know, in the northern hemisphere, it's moving 500 kilometers north. 41,000 different kinds of grain that you can then study and say, okay, we can suit this to individual climates or just individual soil types. This in contrast to agriculture as it's practiced now, where you have corn, soy, and wheat occupying 62% of the land. The reason I mention this is not to talk facts and figures, but to illustrate that we're used to one way of thinking. And there are all kinds of possibilities that people are coming up with now that we can act on to create a much better world and also to let nature have a rest and to restore itself. But how does a company like Patagonia have a role to play in this big picture thinking? And why, for instance, does Patagonia need a director of philosophy? <laughs> well, Patagonia has a lot more than me involved in this effort. I think that if I go back to our switch from pitons to chocks, if I go back to the moment when we decided to switch from conventional cotton entirely to organic cotton. Which is 20 years ago. Yes, it was 20 years ago. But when we made that decision, we had no plan B. So it was either succeed at that or get out of sportswear. And it was extraordinarily difficult because we broke our own link in the global supply chain. When we bought cotton from farmers, the farmers didn't know the spinners. So we had to find 
spinners who would work with organic cotton. And then we had to create the relationships with mills. And we had none of that beforehand. We were just, you know, we'd present the purchase order and the spec sheets to the uh, assembly factory, and they would work with the cotton broker and from there on on. So that was a, a major change. And then the fact that we were able to do that and survive as a business and then thrive as a business, I think gave us the confidence to do things like replace neoprene and wetsuits, to take out an ad that says, don't buy this jacket, to advise our customers, don't buy what you don't need. And it came about because we learned how implicated we were in the harm that's being done in general. Let's in talk about no unnecessary harm as yeah. a mission statement. Yeah. Cause no unnecessary harm is the second clause of the mission statement. And I think that the interesting thing is, is it's a realistic statement because what it says is we're going to create harm. We don't know. We said this also in Don't Buy This Jacket. We don't know how to make anything that doesn't take more from the planet than we can give back. And so the question is to minimize the harm, but also there are opportunities now, as I mentioned with regenerative agriculture, where you can actually give back more than you take. And that has to be the goal, to have an economy that's regenerative, and also regenerative at a human level, that helps revive the health of uh, human connections and communities, as well as the health of nature. So why is the company involved in this? The company is involved in this in a kind of, uh, we realize the harm we're doing, we're saying, okay, there is an alternative, we're going to do something differently. You can go down that path and you keep unveiling it. You keep unveiling a little bit, you find out what's going on and you have to do a little bit more. You also gradually accept responsibility. So I'm wearing a Patagonia organic cotton shirt and 30 years ago, if you had told me you're responsible for everything that goes on in the making of that shirt, for the labor conditions of the people who sewed it, for the conditions of the river and the dye houses that produce the, the dyes, I would have said, that's too much. We're, that's not right. But now I would say, yeah, you know, and we're not the wow. only ones responsible, but we are. What does corporate responsibility mean to you? How would you define it? Well, the phrase, I think, is usually used as greenwash. That's unfortunate because the original corporate responsibility movement was quite serious. But I think it's lost some of its teeth. We use the phrase social and environmental responsibility just to specify what that means. We also don't use the word sustainability. I know this. Why not? Why? Because we think that nothing we do is sustainable. Not yet. There are things we do with our little food company that are sustainable, but for the most part, we're, we're reducing the harm we cause. No unnecessary harm. Yeah. And so in that case, if you say, okay, we're pursuing sustainable practices, the fact is we're not yet. But we can be responsible. Everybody can have agency. Everybody can look at what they're doing and improve their practices. And that's mm. what Patagonia is doing. So that's why we've gone back to this word. It was a more traditional word in business. The, the idea of responsible business almost goes back to General Electric and IBM of the 1950s and 60s before the Milton Friedman idea. This is when companies still regarded themselves as having obligations to their employees to take care of them and to their communities. Then came in this business idea of the sole value of a company, the sole legitimate purpose of a company is to return 
money to its shareholders. And that wiped out that idea of responsible business. You talk about different responsibilities that business have in your writing, so mm -hmm. beyond the yeah. bottom line. Yeah, right. Responsibilities to... Employees and customers, communities, and also to nature. And that's something that... To vulnerable nature as yeah, well. Yeah, and that's something... This last element of responsibility is not something that GM or IBM would have thought of in 1959. That, that's kind of a new area of responsibility for business. You co-authored the book, The Responsible Company, mm. with Yvonne. Right. It's essentially like a how-to book that mm -hmm. can give businesses the tools they might need to rethink the broken old yeah. ways we used to do yeah. business, or as you describe it, which is pretty hectic, a 200-year-old industrial model that can no longer be sustained ecologically, socially, or financially. Right. Right. Big stuff again. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that book. Well, I would say the book is almost, uh, I've never thought this before, I'd say that it is in some ways a manifesto and in some ways a how-to book. So the first is very brief, but the first 90 pages argues what is the environmental crisis, why should businesses behave differently, and then the last 65 pages is really a guide, it's a checklist. Yeah of different practices that a business can engage and in. And it's practical. It's yeah, like this practical. is how you can deal yeah. with your energy consumption. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, literally down to the lights that you yeah, use. exactly. Or the uh, how you treat runoff in your parking lot. I borrowed the checklist from a couple of sources. One is from uh, B-Lab. Uh, we are a B Corp, and we've been strong supporters of that movement, and also from the Napa County Vintners Association. Oh, really? We're the first organization to produce a, really? an environmental checklist for its members. That's yeah. cool. When was yeah. that? Like a long I'm time ago. I'm not sure ago. when they... Not too long ago. I'm not sure when they started. In the 90s, probably. But your yeah. idea was that people, big and small, in terms of the corporation yeah. size, could yeah. look at this and think, here are some practical things that we can actually do right. to reshape the model. Right. And it was something Yvonne... It was really his contribution to the book. He wanted something that was very concrete. So you could take what we were talking about philosophically and say, what does that actually mean in terms of practice? So you can connect that back. Because those big ideas are just so hard to grapple with. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. What are, and yeah. also when we do raise these big ideas, the constant question or the refrain that comes from people we're talking with is, okay, but what do we do? Right. And sometimes that question is genuine and sometimes that question is, I don't want to deal with this and so uh, what we're saying is, yeah, you, there's lots of things you could do. In the first chapter of that book, you write that humans are ingenious, adaptive, and clever. Mm -hmm. We also have moral capacity, compassion for life, and an appetite for justice. Yeah. But, and this is what I was thinking, Vincent, we are stuffing up the planet like never before. Right. We know this. Mm -hmm. Why aren't more companies and governments more focused on nature's vulnerability, or do you think that mm -hmm. they are going that way? I talk about this a lot when, I'm, when I talk with employees and when I talk with business students. I think that in many ways the environmental crisis is invisible. So, you know, we come in this room, we turn the lights on, you, could, you turn the tap on, the water comes out, you're in Sydney. The climate's uh, controlled. Yeah, you're climate controlled. You go outside and the air doesn't stink. You can jump in the harbor and your skin doesn't come off. Whereas in the 1970s, before we passed clean air and water laws, all of this was really visible and in your, literally in your face, as it is today in Beijing. So I think what we have is a kind of soft loss of natural health that's very 
the, the health of nature, and it's very hard to see. You have this gradual process of desertification that if you don't know anything that's healthier, it just looks like that's the way the world is. That is quite terrifying. It is terrifying, and I think that that's part of the problem as well, because on the one hand, it's hard to see, and when you start to see it, it's terrifying. And I think it gets into a, there's a human quality, um, psychological phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. And what it means is if we see a problem that we don't think we can deal with, we tend to look away. If it's something that, that belongs to someone else or that it's outside my realm of responsibility or agency. On the other hand, again, going back to having been around for a while, if you had told me in 1973 that, well, first of all, let's just say that there is no strong environmental consciousness, that there is no strong sense on a daily basis in an integrated way that we're, we have an environmental crisis that we have to deal with within the next 35 years. Let's just say that. Let's not say it's getting better. But then look at how things actually come to consciousness. So if you go back to 1973, and if you had told me that nobody would be smoking indoors in my lifetime, I would have said, that's crazy. You know, That's an ingrained cultural habit that every house had ashtrays. If you had told me that gay marriage in 1973 or 1974 would be something that would come about in my lifetime, I would have said you're crazy. Well, Vince, please tell Tony Abbott this Yes, (laughs) I've been reading about Tony Abbott. Unbelievable. But we had the same, you know, we, these, uh, the laws were proposed a couple of times in California and and voted down and then they were voted up. And I think one of the things that happened that the reason that gay marriage is invincible in some way is as you notice within Tony Abbott's family, his daughter is uh, much against the law. His sister is, uh, I guess, a Sydney counselor and, and has a, a female partner. What happens is that the political, in some ways, gets transformed by the personal. That even if you're a social conservative, if you love your daughter or you love your sister who is gay, you want them to have exactly the same rights you do. It's no longer political. And I, th- I think what will happen with the sense of responsibility for the environment is everybody's going to have a story to tell. You know, you're going to know somebody who's lost a house. I mean, you're already, if you're, lobstering is a very famous activity in, in the U.S. Well, the center of lobstering has moved 250 miles from has it? north. Yeah, because the from temperature of the water has changed. If you know a farmer, that farmer is seeing pests and moles that only existed a couple of hundred miles south. The intensity of storms, the, the fact that 80% of Australians live along uh, a rising sea coast, and the same in the United States, 40% of the people in the world are affected by a rising sea level. When that starts to get personal, I think eventually you will have a change that can happen very suddenly. So it can be very slow to develop and then it happens suddenly, and then everybody understands this isn't just a matter of recycling my newspapers. This is a matter of concerted effort. This is something that we have to deal with in business, with NGOs, and with government. Okay, a company like Patagonia has good ethics Mm -hmm. and a feeling for environmental Mm -hmm. responsibility Mm -hmm. in its DNA. How hard is it for a company that has not got those things built within it to make Mm -hmm. change? Hard. But... You know, I think we're pretty interesting in the, in the depth and variety of things that we take on. 
Yeah, like everything. <laughs> everything. Like ah. food. But let's <laughs> like say... Like clothing, like actually... Gra- I mean, yeah. if you look, and I will share links in the show notes, <laughs> but if you actually spend some time playing around on the Patagonia website, you can see that there are so many... Yeah organizations that you support and get involved with there's activist right. elements there are so many categories mm-hmm. where right. you're using your powers for good it's actually yeah. extraordinary yeah. it's its own ecosystem yeah and i think it's interesting because on a positive level i actually think there has to be more of this i think there are too many businesses governments and organizations that say okay we're going to do two things out of three or we're going to do what we do well, and we're going to kind of outsource the rest. That's been the thinking. And I think you need to replace that with a holistic sense of responsibility and also a holistic course of action. So it's made a major difference in our company, I think, over the past 15 years, where I see now in a Helena Barber, I see in... Helena uh, Barber is the... Is our head of sportswear. I see in all the product managers, rather than just having a sense of, okay... Here's the collection for the season. I'm worried about the sales. I'm worried about my margin. They're also concerned about their goals for fair trade certified labor, for environmental improvements. It's no longer something that they say, okay, somebody else in the company, in the sustainability department, et cetera, is going to worry about this. Mm. This is, this is, I own this. And I think you need more of that. Mm. But in the meantime, a corporation like Walmart, they're aware pretty strongly of what's going on with the environment. They do very sophisticated work, for instance, in dairy, to reduce the methane that comes from cows. You can change the, the, yeah, the change the way they eat grass. But their limitation is they can do anything that saves costs in energy, water, or waste. And eventually, I think all businesses know they're going to have to pay for greenhouse gases too. But that, that's okay. You know, I'm happy... Because they have huge, these big companies, publicly traded, can have huge impacts. But I do think that you need more enterprises who are going to take the approach that Patagonia does of having a holistic sense of responsibility for what they do. It's easier for a company that is privately held as opposed to one that has to answer to its shareholders. I want to just raise an example of something that I don't think anyone else would ever do, (laughs) which was, or perhaps they will, but certainly you were first, which is the campaign that's very famous that you ran on Black Friday in the New York Times in 2011. Right. Do not buy this jacket. And that was something you worked on with Rick Ridgway. Can you talk us through what that was all about? Yeah. In 2005, we were moved by the cradle-to-cradle concept of circular economy. And so we committed ourselves to, by 2010, that we would take back anything that we made and we would recycle it. So that set us down on that path. And then the more we went down that path, we started to realize, you know, there's a reason these four R's that recycle comes last. And what are the four R's? Uh, The reduce, uh, repair, reuse, and recycle. So if something should never have been made in the first place, it's not all that great if you can recycle it. If something has a lot of life in it and you can't repair it, it's not ready to be recycled. If something... As particularly with clothes where people wear a lot of fashion, you can't wear it the next year because you look dorky or you change your taste or you get fat or get thin. Or the tyranny of the fashion magazine tells you that you <laughs> may not wear it anymore because yeah, it sucks and there's a new thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then those clothes have a lot of life in them. So how do you get them out to people who can then use them? And then we looked at the most critical question of reducing consumption. 
And we thought this is really hard for us to, who's going to believe us as a consumer products company talking about this? So what we did was uh, Rick had the headline, uh, don't buy this jacket. And we chose a product that was fairly environmentally benign. It was 40% recycled polyester, very, very long lasting. It was, we do an environmental rating on all of our products and this is right at the top. And we chose that to illustrate that we're, with that product, we're taking more from the planet than we can pay back because it's also generating 23 times its weight in greenhouse gases, two thirds its weight in waste, uh, using enough water to meet the needs of a small village. And that was essentially the argument of this ad was be conscious of what you're buying. Let's all, as a manufacturer, we should change, or as a design house, we should change the relationship to things we make. And as consumers, we should change the way we relate to what's made. And that's another source of invisibility, that global supply chain you don't, you know, nobody knows where their clothes come from. Did you anticipate the depth of reaction to that ad? I mean, we're still talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. No way. I mean, it was so <laughs> and, cool. And I mean, people, people were shocked. They thought yeah. you were crazy. They thought it yeah. was a joke. They, yeah. And, yeah. you know, we're still discussing it yeah. because it's still radical. I know. People would ask me, tell me about this campaign. And I said, you know, we ran that ad once. And on the following Monday, we ran one email on the website. And people still talk about it. So it was... I think very influential and and then they would say well you know that was just a plan to goose up your sales and I'd say well it took a vote of the board to decide to run it. I was going to say we, how hard we, was it to we, get through? We, we thought it risked reducing the sales. Okay in the responsible company you write about the need to dismantle the creaky polluting wasteful industrial system and to mm-hmm. find less life draining ways to make things. Mm. Do you personally Vincent ever at 3 a.m. when it's the worst time, think to yourself, should I have added the word ever to that question, do not buy this jacket? Should we stop making things completely? No. I mean, there's a line that if you want to be an environmentalist, you commit suicide. And I don't think that that's true. The quote I mentioned about, that was from Aldo Leopold, that a thing is right when it tends to support the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. That includes human beings. We have a place in all of this, but it's just not the kind of place we've assumed for ourselves. So I think that the day can't come soon enough when we stop taking oil out of the ground, but should we stop clothing and feeding ourselves and writing plays and going to them or making music, um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I raise that not as a provocation, but because it's something that I personally grapple with. Yeah. I love fashion. Yeah. I've been yeah. working in fashion for 20 years. I love yeah. clothes. I love yeah. so many aspects yeah. of the industry that I work in. Yeah. Creativity, yeah. artistic yeah. expression, yeah. tribalism, all yeah. that. But sometimes I think when I'm saying to people, let's consider buying less, mm-hmm. should I not be saying, don't buy anything? And I, I mean, I... I haven't gone that way. Yeah. I, but I, mean, I do, sometimes the shops yeah. freak me out. Yeah. And I wonder about this kind of, yeah. there is a little micro movement of people who are saying, I don't want to buy anything. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if you compare even general 20 years ago, the difference between how American women who were well-dressed and how women in Paris were well-dressed woman in Paris was well-dressed with a very few pieces and with some accessories that 
livened up the line. My wife loves clothes. Your wife, Nora Gallagher, is a wonderful writer. Oh, thank you. Yes, she is. She really is. And I'll also share some links to some of her work in the show. I mean, clothes adornment, it's yeah. all, it's fun. No, it's, it's wonderful beauty, and it's beautiful. But the piece you're wearing now is beautiful. So <laughs> okay. But we do consume too much, though. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the statistic, which I always yeah. quote, is the average woman wears just 40% of what's in her wardrobe. Right. And also that we're buying more clothes than ever before. Right. We're buying clothes more at uh, a much faster pace than ever before. Yeah. And faster there's an argument pace, yeah. for dialing it back. Right. And then you look at the number of stores and what all is in them, and, and they're all, it's all on sale. So there's way too many goods flooding the market that have been, you know, made at human and environmental cost. Quality. I mean, yeah. I think the answers mm-hmm. are about quality, yeah. consideration, not yeah. whim buying, buying things that you actually yeah. really want, that yeah. you're going to value and love. Yeah. You guys also do very interesting work around the whole worn wear right. concept. Yeah. And that's Can what we touch on that threat- briefly? Yes. That's what Common Threads eventually became, because what we looked at was... How do you change that relationship? And part of it is how do you love your clothes, okay? I think for for a lot of people, the closest moment, most intimate moment you have with a piece of clothing is when you hand your credit card across the counter and all of a sudden something you wanted is something you have, mm-hmm. right? So how do you create a deeper relationship than that? And part of it is to have something that you know is going to last a long time and also something that you then come to love because of the experiences you've had related to that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And also, if you think about the origins of Patagonia and about the fact that it was stuff you did things in. Right. And that's still our primary relation. I think people love... Our customers have always expressed a lot of love for the clothing, and this is long before they had any feeling about our business practices. And that's because of the fun they were having, uh, of the experiences they associated the clothing with. So Warren Ware's about extending that life and that connection by saying, we will help you fix it if it... Right. fails or breaks or, right. needs or, or gets a hole in it. Or yeah. It's interesting. I had a great time. I I went on the Warnware college tour for three days, and I got to drive Delia, the Warnware truck, which is this uh, a beautiful wooden shell put on the back of this ancient truck, driving in zero-degree weather on the third day of spring through New Hampshire. And um, when we got to the University of New Hampshire, I had a pack that had a, a buckle broken off. And so I said, you know, why, why not, let's fix this. And so they showed me how to use a seam ripper. And then they put on a new buckle, and they had to sew it back on. They said, what color thread do you want? And I said, red. So now I have a different relationship to that pack. I've got this pack that's a ordinary production model, but it's got this one little yes. line of red thread that establishes that relationship, I would be much more reluctant to give up that pack than other things that I own. I love that. Yeah. I want to finish up by talking about the Footprint Chronicles. Okay. Here's another quote that I wrote down, which I liked a lot. We began talking about words and books, but your quote is, our storytelling isn't just PR. It's a critical step to making improvements. Mm -hmm. The Footprint Chronicles is extraordinary. It's benchmarking stuff, I mean, in terms of supply chain transparency and Mm -hmm. telling stories about how your clothes are made and where and exactly what goes on. Can you just tell us a little bit about the development of those and how you worked on that? Yeah. We looked at conventional CSR reporting that companies have been doing since the 90s. And again, the, the movement to do this was a really great movement. But I actually wrote the first, I wrote a CSR report, Corporate Social Responsibility. And um, 
we looked at it and we said, this is not the way we want to relate to our customers. Because the language was very dry. I was using the, the template created by GRI. So we thought, you know... Let's, Not storytelling, is it? No, it's just no. data. Yeah. yeah. And let, let's do this differently. So we decided to take five products and talk about from the origin of the fiber or either in a field or in an oil well all the way through the production from uh, spinning to knitting, weaving, and, and then assembly and then to our warehouse. And the interesting thing was, and we also mentioned what were the greenhouse gases used, what was the water consumption, how much energy. Massive endeavor. Yeah. Well, it wasn't for five products. That's what made that useful. And then we expanded it to 15 or to 20. Now, the interesting thing about this project is I'd already worked for the company for 30-odd years, but I had always worked on the storytelling or the marketing or the sales end, and I really didn't know much about how clothing was made. I had actually placed those first orders in Hong Kong in 1974, you know, presenting this order for, for rugby shirts and presenting the specs, and then they ran away with it, and they, they dealt with it. So what I found was I learned all of this, but what I ha- didn't expect, because we wrote this CSR report primarily for journalists and for NGOs, and a little bit for customers, that we didn't think customers would be too interested. What I shouldn't have been surprised by is that other employees also learned Everybody else was as siloed as I was. And it raised the level of intelligence of conversation about how we make things. And it made our our struggles or our internal tensions more intelligent and more productive. Because people all of a sudden could see all that was involved in the production of the clothing. But also it's a bit like that little line of red thread because it gives you connections. Yes, yeah. And it affected suppliers. And at first we were very nervous about how they, especially when we mentioned problems. But when we mentioned problems and that the suppliers actually worked to solve them, all of a sudden suppliers are scrambling to compete to be listed on the, on the Footprint Chronicles. So. It's quite world-changing, the Footprint Chronicles. When I first became interested mm. in this space and was trying to understand and figure out yeah. what supply chains yeah. meant and yeah. what those conversations looked like and how to get interested in it without being just put yeah. off by the dryness, <laughs> yeah. this yeah. was where I came. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Mm. Yeah. And I'm sure lots of other companies look at that and think this is where we got to... Yeah, I think a lot of people have imitated it. So, And we're, we're in the process of a, a revamping to try to make it deeper and uh, to take it to the next level. Talking of storytelling, what's your favorite story about Patagonia? It could be anything. It could be something that's <laughs> online. It could be something in the grassroots space. <laughs> My favorite story about Patagonia. Well, you think I can share mine. Okay. It's yes. grim, though. It's not a positive okay. story, but I find it very useful, yeah. and I often yeah. use it when I'm trying to persuade people to think yeah. a little bit more yeah. about how their clothes yeah. impact on them, actually. And it's that story about when you opened your store in, was it in Boston? Boston. And it was a brand new, shiny, beautiful store, but then suddenly everyone started getting headaches and feeling not very well. And then you called in an engineer and said, there's something up with this air conditioning. And then when they'd actually looked into it, and it was a woman, so I loved it. Yvonne told me this. She looked into this, and um, I just don't think there are many engineers who are women in these stories, so I love it. (laughs) But she looked into it, and the answer was not a beautiful answer, and it was. There's nothing wrong with the air conditioning. It's bringing up toxic fumes from your clothes in the storage facility downstairs. And that's how 
you discovered that actually there was formaldehyde habitually used in many, many, in the production of all yeah. kinds of garments. Yeah. And it's how you transport stuff without it wrinkling when it comes from China. Right. I mean, God. But then it also now, Yes, but then led. that's how you can say, oh, is that happening? We don't want to do that. We want yeah. a different solution. To me, when you talked about that way that sometimes we look at the environment and we don't know what's going yeah. on, it's a quiet yeah. thing that we can't, things yeah. are changing, but we don't know. You need knowledge. You need a shocking thing. Shocking right. thing wakes you up. Yeah. And it also led directly to our understanding of how harmful cotton was because we then did a study of these four fibers we used and nylon, polyester, wool, and cotton. You have to understand we've been dealing with steel and aluminum in the climbing business. The half the line came out of an oil well, and all of a sudden we find out that the worst thing we make is cotton. Which you think would be a good thing because it's Which, natural. Benign, it's natural. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that something like 24% of the of all pesticides were used on the cultivation of cotton, which was a much a really small percentage of all arable land. And then when you got into it, it wasn't just these abstract numbers. When you got into it, we, we had a lot of trouble. You've got designers and you've got production people. They've got to design the line color, spec it, you know, go to the trade shows, go to the major customers. And we had broken our connection to the supply chain and we put it back on them and say okay so they're going all right i've got to do everything i did last season now i've got by the way i got to find a new entirely new infrastructure Change for cotton sportswear you're going to raise i got to raise the prices three to five dollars on everything we're making and not a single customer has asked us for it so why are we that crazy and the answer we took people in buses 40 at a time to the Central Valley, to a conventional field, and to an organic field. And what hit home is when you opened the door to the bus and smelled the air, which its organophosphates were developed as nerve gases from World War I. So you go out into a field that smells like the inside of a laboratory. There's no bird that will go anywhere near that field, no worm in the soil, no vegetation. It takes worms three years to come back after you stop spraying. That made it tangible. There was no longer an, a sense of abstraction. And it was this, from this little thing of making people getting sick mm. at the store opening, all the way through this process, then taking our employees to these fields, to the conventional field and then to the organic field. And then people would come back and say, we're doing the right thing. Mm. This is a mm. pain, but I don't want to be part of something that produces cotton that's produced in that in that way. So even though I raised a grim story, it had a happy ending. It had a happy yes, yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not letting you go until I ask you this. You're also a novel writer as well mm -hmm. as a poet. Yeah. What are you writing now? Well, Are you I, always writing? Are you a person with a notebook in your... Yeah, I'm, I'm always writing. I'm, I do write all the time. The poems have been published. I've written a series of four novels uh, that are all interlinked. It was wrote over a 25-year period, and they're not published. So I don't, I'm nervous about calling myself a novelist when they, uh, when they oh, haven't mate, seen the light of day. Oh, mate, you can do that. I've got a novel yeah. that I never sold. Yeah. I still yeah. think I wrote Well, yeah. I don't think I wrote it. I did write it. <laughs> you did write it, yeah. <laughs> took so. me a year and a half of my life, and I couldn't yeah. sell it. Yeah. You can yeah. learn some things about yeah. that. I'm not sure what they are. Resilience. <laughs> Resilience, yeah. But also the process. It's about the process. The process. And you learn an awful lot about writing from writing a novel. Also, Other if you, kind of writing, yeah. 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 It's the only reason I can write nonfiction that I wrote yeah. a novel that didn't yeah. come to fruition. Yeah. And everybody I know who's who writes and hasn't written a book, 
views that as a Rubicon to cross. So, Vincent Stanley, thank you for sharing your stories <laughs> well, with you. Wardrobe thank Crisis. Thank you, Claire. I appreciate it greatly. Okay. Thank you. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you